Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. So this is what I asked you guys to think about um, last week, and your answers should not be said out loud, but they're all over the place, I guarantee you. But what do you think of when you hear the word Christian or you hear the term Christianity? And for some of you, it's amazing memories. It's um, Michael W. Smith and throwing a stick in a fire at youth camp. Um, And only part of the people in this room would even get that joke. And then there's baptism, there's catechism, there's a denomination you grew up. There's just great memories. There's potlucks, there's all of that. Um, Way too much flowers down front around stairs. Like there's those things. And then for others of you, it's legitimately, there's some hurt. There's some anger. There's some stuff like even right now you're grappling with, which is maybe even why you're here, you're watching online or listening via radio. But what do you think about when you hear Christian or Christianity? Here is the brand of Christianity that many in our current culture, specifically in the United States, associate with Christianity. And it's the term right here, self-righteousness. Now you can argue with me, but I'm just telling you, go find studies for yourself, Barna Research, whatever you want. And that's just true. That's what many people, overwhelming majority of people associate with Christianity. I'll never forget um, when I was in um, my second undergrad that I was completing with a theological degree and really wrestling with, does God want me to do this? He want me to be a pastor. I don't think I'm that guy. God, are you sure? I feel like maybe you're calling me, but it may also be a mistake. And so I remember um, actually having this confirmation of I can't be this guy when I was in a class and I was listening to a bunch of students argue, like vehemently argue to the place that it got angry and over the top and just ridiculous over this theological idea of dispensationalism, which if you don't know what that is, that's fine. Most people don't, Um, which is why the argument was so ridiculous. And I'll never forget, and I should have responded better, but somebody to my right turning to me in the middle of the class, like, Brian, what do you think? I was like, I think this is the dumbest argument I have ever heard in my life. And I'm not even going to enter into it. You guys look like fools. Like that's word for word. And I was never invited into any other discussions in that class again. (laughs) And it wasn't even that I had an opinion. I had a huge opinion. Ask my wife. I have opinions about everything. But I just felt like the the self-righteousness and the anger and the going back, it was just ridiculous. And I was like, God, I can't do this. Call me to do something else. And over time, like, you know, this is, this is what God had, but this is a thing that's never left me. And the thing is, to be honest, I know that I can be that guy too, but the self-righteousness that is so often identified with the Jesus movement. Now, here's the thing about self-righteousness. Generally, people who are self-righteous are rarely self-aware. And the thing about it, and thanks for the moo um, among you guys, it at least lets me know you're with me. Um, that only happens in church culture, by the way. I Literally, a friend of mine had another friend, I'm getting way off topic, and they came to church like for the first time in their life, and they're like, why does everybody moo? And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, and it's like a point's made, and they're all like, mmm, like what is that? It only happens in church, you're weird. Okay, so anyway. 
I shouldn't have said that because I like it. I, I love to know that you're with me. But anyway, they're rarely self-aware. And here's the thing. It's not really a religious thing. It's actually just a human thing. Because anytime your rightness leads you to a, a thing that kind of becomes your identity, it, you're quickly a couple steps away from ending up in a place that you know, none of us want you to be. And hopefully you don't want you to be. Because anytime you internalize any view that becomes your identity, you end up internalizing it for everybody else around you. That's just kind of, and all of a sudden, you're not just right about something. You are, you are righteous, self-righteous. And suddenly it's, you're wrong and I'm right. And what's wrong with you? And then that's a couple steps away for where all of a sudden you, you have an excuse for why you dismiss or look down on or mistreat somebody else because they're not as right as you are. And it's really just a human thing. It's not even a religious thing. But here's the thing, if you're a Jesus follower and if you're just kind of trying to figure this out and investigate, I'm so glad you're like, it's a huge risk to come to church. And so the fact that you're here, I have so much respect or you're listening or watching online. But here's the thing, if you have any kind of view, I don't care what it is, that leads you to have an excuse to dismiss or disrespect or mistreat somebody else around you, like you might be right, but you are not righteous. Not according to Jesus anyway. And in fact, if I can just go a little bit harder, I think in our current cultural moment, specifically in the United States, that is the brand of Christianity that a lot of people have experienced. And it's why statistically, they're running from the church as fast as they possibly can. And so we'll come back to that in a second. Last week, I introduced this series where it was basically Jesus introduced something in the first century that was brand new that in some ways we're still trying to catch up with. And we need to redefine something or rebrand some things according to what Jesus initially launched. Now, here's the good news. If you're, again, trying to figure this out, not sure if you even believe, I've met several already today and this is the first time you've been back in church in a while. Here's the really cool thing. The things about Christianity that you resist maybe are things that we should resist as well. Like the very things that, has, that have bothered you really should bother us. Because here's what I said last week that is just true if you study historically. People in the first century, Christians in the first century, the reason that anybody had an issue with them was not the way they treated people. It was not their hypocrisy. It was not their judgmentalism or that they were exclusive or homophobic or political. It was that they were so loyal to Jesus. Like that was the only thing that was resistible. People would be like, man, they treat women better than anybody in our culture. They love everybody. You should work for the, the Christians. You should hire the Christians. You should try to marry them. Like they go into villages and they'll risk their lives trying to take care of people. That's how first century Christians were known. And the thing that got them in trouble was loyalty to Jesus. Cause they're like, it's amazing how they treat people but they believe that Jesus is the son of God which is ridiculous and so we need to persecute them because they're, they're threatening the balance of power of the religious system. But here's what you need to know. People were drawn and attracted to the movement of Jesus. And for the first 300 years, the movement exploded to the point of the religious and political leaders wanted to persecute Christians. But by the third, fourth century, they basically upended the Roman empire because so many people were drawn to this new movement. In fact, it's interesting. The term Christian is used three times in the New Testament. It was all a derogatory term by outsiders and it denoted loyalty to a person. And I said last week, 2000 years later, I think Christianity for most people means anything but loyalty to a person. In fact, isn't this true? Maybe not for you, but somebody you know, like you can hide behind the term Christian and you can pretty much get away with anything. 
Because you can find a verse out of context from the Old Testament generally, and you can treat or mistreat or whatever you want. And you this in the text actually says, and you pretty much do whatever. But in the first century, Christian actually meant loyalty to Jesus. I think 2000 years later, it means anything but. So what if we rebranded to what the New Testament actually says, which is a better term is disciple, follower of Jesus. Because isn't it true in a lot of cases, when you start honing in on follower of Jesus, that is almost terrifyingly clear. You can't get away with near as much when you're not a Christian, I am following Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And for the first three, 400 years, I'm telling you, more than any other time in our movement, that's what people did. And people were drawn and attracted to this movement. And it changed the world. And yet now fast forward, the brand that many people have experienced has been anything but that. And so there's some things that need to be rebranded because Jesus could not have been clear about what this movement should look like about what his followers should look like. And in fact, a guy by the name of Luke comes along and he carefully investigated, interviewed eyewitnesses, wrote down basically the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And he records what has become an iconic parable that Jesus told. And I wanted to deal with this in part two of this series early on because it is the definitive teaching by Jesus on what this movement should look like. Jesus defines all of it. And in it, it's really the context that clarifies the point of what Jesus is trying to make. So I'm gonna start with the context, but the point that he eventually makes is the point that he makes all throughout his ministry, all throughout his life. And at the end of this, I don't know how you're gonna feel, but I hope at some level, all of us, including me, because none of us is gonna get this perfect, are a little bit bothered, a little bit uneasy and uncomfortable and simultaneously moved and inspired with what Jesus has actually called us to. So one, one day Jesus with a bunch of people and in Luke, he records it and he writes it down in chapter 15, verse one. And it says this, that tax collectors and sinners. Now let me just stop there for just a second because this is important. And I've told you this before, but um, put whatever you want in the sinners category. Everybody has a different you know, version of sinners and it's never you, but it's somebody else that does something worse than you. So whatever in the first century, you know, pimps, prostitutes, murderers, I don't know what comes to mind. And you're like, ah, that's probably a sin. That goes in that category. Now, well, here's what you need to understand about the psychology of the first century. If they they were in the sinners category, like, yes, we've murdered people, but at least we're not a tax collector. <laughs> like, that's how they thought. They're like, we're not going to be in the tax collector category. So put us in the sinner category. Tax collectors have to have their own category because in that culture, they were seen, this is important, as hopelessly lost. And so there he is, tax collectors and sinners. And then I love this. This is so, such a key thing. We're all gathered around Jesus. They're on the front row. They're, they're leaning in and you've got all of the unrighteous people who can't get enough of Jesus. And the thing is, honestly, like that's bothersome to me. And I said this in the last series, but I'll repeat it again. In a lot of our churches, and this is not me being overly critical, I just think this is true. And, and, and we're doing our best to, to try to move in this direction, but the people that were attracted to Jesus are not attracted to most of our churches in the United States. They're not sitting on the front row. They don't feel comfortable. It's not the safest place in the world to struggle. Like it's the last place. That they, in fact, isn't it true for some of you? Like the reason that you started reconsidering Christianity wasn't really an intellectual or theological argument for some of you. It was just that you met too many Christians. And you're like, if this is how it is, I don't know if I can take this seriously. I mean, what's the saying? Like, why do bad Christians happen to good people? That's not the saying, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Here's the thing about Jesus, and I'll, I'll, I'll move on. Like, Jesus was the most righteous person on the planet. He wasn't lacking righteousness. Dude got it right 100% of the time. 
but he didn't carry his righteousness in such a way that it was self-righteous, where it propelled people and moved them away from him. In fact, it was the opposite, that people felt drawn to Jesus, attracted to Jesus, that people who were nothing like Jesus, they liked Jesus, they want to hang out with Jesus, and people who, and, and Jesus liked them. I mean, what if that was said of us in our generation? Like those people could not be more different. We don't agree on anything. I mean, their behavior and lifestyle, I don't know. But we love being together. That's almost never said of the church or Jesus followers. But it was said of Jesus and we're Jesus' body. So all the sinners and tax collectors were all gathered around Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law complained or muttered. This guy welcomes sinners and tax collectors. And here's the reason that they complained. Because they thought, and again, it's not much different than us, that if, if Jesus is really from God, here's how it's gonna happen. Jesus is gonna, they're gonna avoid Jesus the way that they avoid us. Because all the religious leaders in the first century, they didn't have any contact with all the unrighteous people, ever. They didn't wanna hang out with each other, didn't like each other. So if he's from God, he's gonna avoid them and they're gonna avoid him. And so they started to draw conclusions. Well, I bet Jesus is just watering down the Torah. But he's not really preaching the Torah. I bet it's just like anything goes to attract a crowd. And there's no way Jesus being faithful to the text. <laughs> so here, here they are, all the sinners, all the tax collectors gathered around Jesus. And they say, they mutter, complain. This man welcomes, as in read the rest of the New Testament, saves a seat, has a party, opens the good wine. Everybody's laughing and chilling at it. Like he, this guy, I mean, welcomes this guy welcomes sinners and he eats with them, which was a sign of intimacy and close relationship in the first century. And again, the Pharisees thought, no, no, if he's from God, he's gonna invite us. Because by the way, the Pharisees and Jesus actually had more in common. I mean, theologically, there's a lot that they agreed on. And yet he's not hanging out with the Pharisees. But they're like, if, if you're from God, you're gonna invite us in, you're gonna avoid the sinners. And so they start to think, just go with me for a second. Does he condone their behavior? Like, is he okay with what they're doing? I mean, he seems to be laughing. And I mean, you know, him and Matthew have quite a rapport and like constantly with the sinners and tax collectors, seems like he's enjoying himself. Does he, is he just completely thrown out the standards? Does he just condone all of their behavior? This is just really important. I just want to make this point for a second. Jesus never worried about guilt by association. And if he had, he would have never left heaven. And we shouldn't worry about guilt by association. And let me just make a cultural analysis for a second for whatever it's worth. We live in a culture where any association requires some kind of explanation or any association requires some kind of qualification. Anybody you follow on social media, it's like everybody's got to qualify. Well, I don't agree with everything. Well, why would you follow somebody you don't agree with 100% of the time? Yeah, we hang out, but you know, I don't agree with all their lifestyle. Yeah, we whatever, but you know, we don't, there's a lot of stuff we don't see. I, can I just, as lovingly as I can. Anytime you've got to qualify what you don't agree with about somebody else, that is the language of the insecure. Of course you don't agree 100% with anybody on planet Earth. I'm married to the woman that I love more than anything in the world. Do you know how much we disagree on stuff? <laughs> That's not the point. And the church has got to get comfortable with, and of course people are going to misunderstand you. So what? Of course people are going to think you condone certain behavior. So what? Of course people, oh, they're just watering. You know how many DMs I get about that? So what? 
This is the example of our Savior. And there he is with all the righteous and the unrighteous gathered around. And so here's the question real quick and I'll move on. I think this is an important question. Which one are you? Like, which one do you identify with? And I think at different seasons, we, we go both ways. But wh- where do you tend to lean? Because I think that's an important, like, understanding and self-awareness for me and for you. Like, it's, it's just a, they're right, or I'm right, they're wrong. I can't believe. How could anybody do that? How could anybody believe that? Like, that, that whole group, like, what is up with those people? Is that how you lean? And then others of us, we kind of lean on the, the unrighteous where we view ourselves like that, where it's like, yeah, maybe there's a God, but if, if there's a God, maybe he even loves me. I don't think he likes me. And in fact, a lot of Christians have kind of, you know, punctuated that point that he probably doesn't like me. So maybe in your experience, you always kind of feel distant. There Jesus is, the unrighteous and the righteous. And they're both confused about God. The same way that many in our culture are still confused about God. And they're confused about what God likes and about who God likes. And so Jesus is like, well, then we should talk about it. And he launches into three parables about the value of things. And again, one of these is iconic. Even if you've never spent any time around the church, you maybe know it, but I'm telling you, it's the definitive teaching on what Jesus is about and what this movement is about. And here's the thing about a parable. A parable is just this. It's an untrue story used to illustrate something that's true. And so he starts with a question as he launches in and he answers it the same way, these three parables. Verse four, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and then loses one. And if you're us, I'm like, that's a hundred, that's a lot of sheep. And you're gonna lost 10, I'd probably be good. Like that's, you still have 90 sheep. But here's what they understood. No, no, it's easy answer. You search until you find it. I mean, let's put it in our context. Anytime you lose your kid. (laughs) Or your iPhone. And for some of you, I'm afraid the emotional reaction would be proportional to either one of those. But this is really important too, just real quick. And I know that this goes without saying, but I still need to say it. You don't console yourself with what is unlost. Now you can judge me all you want with what I'm about to say, but somebody's gotta be honest in church. I've got four kids, all close in age, hard to wrangle them. We have lost all of them. I mean, not simultaneously, but we have lost one of the four at different points along the way. And here's what I have never done, not one time, where my three-year-old is like, we can't find him again. You know, hopefully nothing's wrong with him. You know, you start to get a panic after about 30 seconds. We can't find him. Never have I stopped. Guys, it's fine. I've got three more that we had and it's no big deal. That's why we had four. You never console yourself with what is unlost. You are hyper moved by what's not there, by what is lost. And so Jesus, who's the master communicator, is like, well, I tell you in the same way that there's gonna be more rejoicing in heaven. Over one sinner, one dysfunctional person, that's all of us, you don't even call it sin, but just that thing where you stare up at the ceiling, and you're like, I haven't even met my own standards for my own life. One sinner who repents, changes their mind about God, then over 99 righteous person who don't need to repent. And they got what God meant in this moment as Jesus is telling this story. Hey, you guys need to know all the righteous and unrighteous sinners and tax collectors, Pharisees, who he's talking to. God views unrighteous people as something valuable that is separated from its owner. It's disconnected. And I think this is the question. 
Is that how you view people who are not as right as you are? Is that how you view I mean, whatever it is, like that thing that you get so bent out and I can't believe them and how can they justify that and how can they do that and I can't believe what they're doing to our culture. Is, is, that, is that how you view people not as right as you are? And let me put it in another context. Is that how you view people who are not as right or left as you are? So he's like, no, no you're gonna leave the one, you're gonna go after the 99, there's gonna be celebration. And then Jesus does something extraordinary. I don't wanna land on this too long, but this is crazy. And it's not gonna be crazy to you. But verse eight, or suppose a woman... And they're like, what? What? Because here's the thing about parables. In a parable, somebody represents God every time and somebody represents human beings. And so Jesus, I'm telling you, this is not paradigm shifting to us. It was to them because we, many in our culture, view this as self-evident. This was not self-evident to them. Women were in the crowd, make no mistake, but they couldn't answer because they couldn't talk. And they're listening to Jesus. And Jesus is like, oh, I got one for you. Suppose a woman, whoa, a woman, and right here, Jesus, and he was so strategic throughout his ministry, elevates the status of women, women because he's about to make a woman the hero of the story. She's about to be the one who represents God in the story. And this is right off the heels of telling a story about a Samaritan man. And Samaritans, there was so much racial tension, were despised. They were seen as less than human beings. There was so much racial tension in their culture. And Jesus, I mean, subtly from the bottom up, his subversive kingdom thinking, he never took culture on head on. He just changed the way people thought from the bottom up. He makes a woman the center as the hero of the story. I just wanna say this real quick because I gotta move on. This is, there's so much thinking around this last couple of years around, well, you know, don't ever talk about, you know, racial healing or reconciliation or patriarchy or, you know, that, that's just preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. I agree with you, by the way, preach the gospel. The only thing is the gospel implies the fact that every single individual is seen and treated as the imago Dei made in the image of God is 100% equal. And if there is any tinge, even if it's 1% of inequality, it is a gospel issue because at the heart of the gospel says that God so loved every type of person in the world. And so let's not be confused. Anything around race or patriarchy or equality or anything else has been hijacked. It has been politicized, but it is a Jesus issue before it is anything else. So suppose a woman, the hero of the story, loses some coins. She's got to find them. And the women's like, oh, we know what we do, but they can't answer. We'd go after them and we'd find them. And then Jesus gets to the famous part of the parable, this iconic part where a wealthy man has two sons and the younger one is waiting for his dad to die. And his dad, I don't know, he did, you know, he worked out, he ran a lot. His dad would not die healthy. And so the son's like, okay, uh, my dad won't die, but I want his inheritance. So he loses his patience. In verse 12, the father said, he says, father, give me my share of the estate. And everybody listening, all the righteous and unrighteous people are like, are you kidding me? That's paramount to murder. Because he's basically saying, in no uncertain terms, we, he, they wish, he wishes his dad was dead. So just stone the guy in the story. Are you kidding me? Can't wait to see where the story goes. But he divided his property between them. And again, everybody listening, the context clarifies the point. All the sinners and the unrighteous and the tax collectors and the Pharisees are like, what? Why would he do that? Well, the other parables told us why he would do that. Because the son is disconnected from the father relationally and he wants him back. 
The son is disconnected from the father relationally and so he's willing to let him go if he'll get him back faster to reconcile the relationship. But it is all about the relationship. So he gives inheritance and the younger son, maybe you know the story, he goes off and he blows it in you know, half of his estate in a matter of months, max out all the credit cards. I mean, hold, like just does whatever he wants. And then there's a huge bump in the economy. Everything goes south. He doesn't have a job. And so he gets a minimum wage, wage job as a farmer, but he is so desperate even to eat and nobody will help him. Dude is just lost. And so he starts to devise a plan about what he needs to do. But here's, here's what you have to understand at this point in the story. Everybody listening to Jesus is like, good. Yes. This is a, Jesus, thank you for telling this story because this is gonna be a perfect example. We can tell our kids about the principle of sow and reap. And this guy is reaping what he sowed and we can't wait to see what happens at the end of the story. That's how everybody thought. And Jesus, who's the master, has them. Jesus was a brilliant communicator because now unknowingly they all agree on something. They're all on the same page for the first time ever. The unrighteous, the righteous, the sinners, the tax collectors, the Pharisees. And eventually the younger son looks in the mirror and is like, what, what am I doing? What have I become? And maybe, I, I don't know, but maybe that's, that's the exact question that you're asking. And it's why you're in church. It's why you're listening. It's why you're tuning into radio, but you're kind of doing it convert, covertly because you don't want anybody to know. But there's this thing where you're staring in the mirror and you're going, what? how did I end up here? H- how did I become this? And you kind of don't really recognize you. And what I want to tell you for just a second, it is not an accident that you're here. It's not an accident that you're listening. It's not an accident that you're podcasting somewhere and you don't even know me and It seems like it's all by accident because you're strategically in this moment and listening to me for a reason. And so there Jesus is and he's talking to a bunch of people who feel similarly and he's about to tell them what the father is like and what the father likes. And so the younger son is like, man, my my father's servants are better off than me. So I'm just gonna come up with a plan. He writes, you know, a little speech on three by five cards and he starts going back home. And it says in verse 18, I set out and I'm gonna go back to my father and I'm gonna say to him, this is a speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven, that's God, and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I wanna be treated by son, I just want a job. So just make me like one of your hired men. And then he, you know, rehearses it some more. I'm gonna set out and I'm gonna go back and father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he gets it just right in verse 20 and he got up and he went back to his father. And again, everybody who's listening to Jesus is leaning in to go, we cannot wait to see where this goes. Because we know exactly what happens to people like him. Because they knew what they would do. And you know what you would do. But they had no idea what the father would do. And for many of us, we still don't have any idea what the father would do. And just so you know, it's the reason, so important. It's the reason that Jesus came. In fact, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the father speaks over him at, at the baptism with John the Baptist and says, this is my son. I'm well pleased in him. And this is my paraphrase. And if you want to know what God is like, watch my boy for the next couple of years. In fact, Jesus would say himself, if you want to know what God is like, watch the Father. Don't watch other people who brand themselves Christians. Don't listen to other people who've mistreated you. Do not pay close attention to what other people have spoken over you. That may be the furthest thing from what Jesus is about. If you want to know what God's like, how God views people, how God responds and reacts to people, you need to watch Jesus. 
Because Jesus came, is why he's telling this story, to remove as much mystery as possible around what God is actually like. And so there he is. And the younger son is coming home. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with, and you maybe know the end of the story, but if you didn't, my question for me, question for you is if the father is like you, what goes in the blank? If the father is operating in terms of how we view people, how we view culture, how we view people who don't believe, aren't morally the way we are, theologically don't agree. Like what goes, if you're the son, what goes in the blank? Because Jesus is about to make really clear. You either have been, are, or will be the younger son in the story. Everybody has been lost. And so while he was a long way off, his father saw him waiting for him and was filled with compassion. And he waits for Jesus' audience to settle down because there's gasps in the crowd. What? And then, I love how Jesus teaches. He gets them all on the same page. He shocks them a little bit, but then he takes them to the edge of what they can handle and says, and he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And they're like, what? Nobody does that. And in first century culture, like the Middle Eastern men did not treat anybody like this. I mean, like maybe if, if I was, you know, getting into grad school or at a big celebration, and I mean, he, he still wouldn't do that. But let alone this son who squandered half the estate, guys come out, he still smells like club, you know, like there's been some shady stuff that went on. Coming back to, tr to you're gonna grab him, you're gonna kiss him, you're gonna welcome him. Nobody does that. I'm telling you, everybody in Jesus' audience is shocked by that behavior. Behavior. And they're connecting the dots, the father in the story. This is God the Father. And with everything that this guy has done, it, it is unconscionable that he would respond this way. And so the younger brother gets there and he tries to get his speech out and the, the father's not really even listening to it. So the son gets to him, father, I've sinned against heaven, against you, which is true. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's like, shh, shut up, uh, quick. Yeah, but hold on, dad, I'm not done. I've sinned against you and, and I'm just asking, shh, quick. Immediately restored. Amen. Quick. Bring the best robe, which is, none of his minimum wage workers get that. This denotes, you're still a part of my family. You're still a part of what we're doing. Go get the ring, which signifies this multi-generational thing you're a part of. Get the sandals and put them on his feet. You can finish your speech later. Quick, my son is back. Now, before we move on, do you think that's a lot of what people have experienced in terms of the brand of Christianity that they bumped up against? I think... I think they get a lot more of, well, let's just, let's just wait and see if this guy means it or not. Let's just put him on probation for a little while and see if there's really heart change and if there's real repentance and if he's really gonna change. But I think we need to not rush to anything or celebrating it. We don't really even know if he's sorry. Dude just needs a job. So let's just be a little bit cautious and wait. We're not really sure. I think predominantly that's how we tend to treat people who are trying to make their way back home. 
And the father in the story is going, you, you guys still don't get it. This has nothing to do with behavior. This has everything to do with relationship, with trying to reconcile, with trying to restore relationship, with trying to lead my son back in proximity with me. And I'll do that way before there's been any behavioral change. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet because this son of mine, verse 24, was dead. And to me, he's alive again. And he was lost. And now he is found to me. And the ambidomisus, and the implication is, and this will shatter some of our theology, that God does not see people as good and bad. He sees them as lost and found. In fact, the Greek verb is the same Greek verb in a verse that is well known by most, that God so loved the world, John wrote it, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have, and this is the literal translation, the Greek verb, but would not be lost to God. And so the older brother hears the celebration. I mean, just try to get the picture for a second. And he asks what's going on. Like he's coming back, put in another 12 hours. I mean, he's grinding every day, CFO of the company. I mean, he's getting it done a day after day after day. And he comes back and he hears the music's kind of loud and there's some kind of celebration. He asks everybody what's going on. They're like, your, your younger brother is back. Like your father's throwing him a party. It's incredible. You should go, it's open bar. Like it's amazing, amazing what's going on right now. And he, here's, the, here's the old, I'm sorry if I offended anybody with that, but I, in their context, I think. Um, the older brother, verse 28, became angry. Do you know any angry Christians? He became angry and he refused to go in. I'm not going in. I'm not celebrating anything. You have this in six months and we see how he tracks, maybe I'll celebrate something. Because he's caught up with everything, what everybody else is caught up in, with what the sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees were all confused by. This isn't about behavior. And the older brother is just self-righteous. And mark it down, the more self-righteous you become, the angrier you become. And at the heart of it is a version of Christianity where you think based on your faithfulness and moral purity, which is kind of a joke, that you're owed something by God or something is getting, somebody else is getting something that you're owed or we deserve and we're owed. And at the heart of it is self-righteousness and anger. And the older brother is just angry. He's not celebrating anything. In verse 29, all these years I've been slaving for you, 12 hour days, building this company, being faithful, checking the box. I mean, come on. And I've never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never even gave me a young goat. Dad, not even a young goat. And I've been waiting. So I can celebrate with my friends. In verse 30, but when this son of yours, I'm not gonna say his name, it's your son, you raised him, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes. Dad, I wasn't gonna tell you. But yeah, prostitutes were involved. That's how far this went. Talking about prostitutes. And yet, he comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him? And again, I just wanna do the picture for a second. Son's, you know, coming home, 
God, you know, got his briefcase or his man bag, long day at work, sees everything happening, they're under the tent, and it's like music's loud, big celebration. Seems to be, you know, some drinks that are flowing and everybody's dancing. There's a lot of laughing. I mean, it is a really, really good time. And then all of a sudden he sees a cart go across the lawn and it's got the huge fatted calf on. He's like, that was for my graduation. Like, why are you killing the fatted calf? Why are you throwing this celebration? Are you serious? Like, you should have, sell, you know, threw a, a party or a celebration for me, for what I've done, for the fact that I've been here and I've been so faithful and I've done everything that you've asked me. And you are throwing a celebration for your son who is living it up with prostitutes hitting up casinos, blowing your money, maxing out your credit cards. Are you kidding me? He doesn't deserve this. And the father doesn't argue. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know. That's not the point. Who said anything about deserve? My son was disconnected relationally. And now the relationship is restored. And we'll deal with the behavior later. But we had to celebrate. We have to be glad. It's gonna be open bar. There's gonna be a lot of celebration and we're gonna dance. Because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. Not bad and now he's good. Spiritually dead now alive. He was lost to me. And now he's found. And Jesus finishes the parable and he just leaves. And it was his defining story of his brand of the Jesus movement in every generation. This is what it looks like. And can I just say in love, and I mean this because I've been this guy. If you're just angry, you're angry because how could they? And how could they promote that? And their culture is going to hell in a handbasket because of their behavior. And how could they celebrate that? And how could those people, how could those people just act like this isn't a big deal? How could they engage in that behavior? How could they justify this? How could they, how could they? So angry, so over the top, so I'm right and they're wrong. I just want to tell you that anger is from your self-righteousness. And if you're a follower of Jesus, everybody else, you can just tune this out. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we should know better. Whether it's faith, whether it's politics, whether it's theology, whether it's whatever else you want to argue over, we should know better. Because as it turns out, we aren't any better. We're just better off. Because for many of us, we were dead and now we're alive again and we were lost and now we've been found and we have no reason to be self-righteous or angry at anybody if you understand the gospel. What if we just treated people like that for a week? That's all I'm asking. Just do it for a week and then you can go back to your hostile, disputatious, angry, self-righteous ways if you're one of those people. But just for a week, just mute your Facebook account just for a week to go, I'm just gonna view everybody, not as good and bad, not as us and them against, I'm right, they're wrong, but just as lost. 
needing to be found and not in some kind of self-righteous way, not in some kind of condescending way. We are, will be, are all lost and need to find our way home. What if we did that for a week? Oh, I'll tell you what would happen. We would stop sizing people up and writing them off. Because if your version of Christianity and brand of faith, and just hear my heart, I get it. I, I've, I've been there. But if, if your version allows you to size people up, I don't care who those people are, and write them off, then it's the wrong version. It's the wrong brand of the Jesus movement. Somehow, we missed it somewhere along the way because when your rightness becomes an excuse to dismiss or to mistreat other people around you or beside you, you might be right, but you are not as right as you think. And we're certainly not righteous. So let me just ask you this question. And this is, it's, it's as obvious as it sounds. Do you get angry with lost things? I mean, have you ever lost your iPhone and it just threw a tirade once you found it? Stupid iPhone. I mean, not, not if you're well-adjusted. Nobody does that. You don't get angry at lost things. You find them. You reconnect them. And that's all Jesus is saying, according to Jesus. So does your heavenly father. The father in the story, half of his estate to bring the son back. God never gets mad at lost things. God loves you in spite of what you've done. He does not love you because of what you've done. And that is not watering down the gospel or the good news, guys. That is the good news that it was never based on your behavior. And if you place your faith and trust in Jesus, which means I believe Jesus came and he did live a righteous life, but he was not self-righteous. Lived the perfect life I couldn't, died on the cross for my sin, past, present, and future. And then we don't just believe this because we're hoping for hope. We believe it because three days later, historically, he rose from the dead, validating everything he said about his life and death, that there's life, there's freedom, there's forgiveness. And I'm not trusting me anymore. I'm trusting what God has done for me in Jesus. And I've, as I've said many times, when you do that, no matter if you ever get your behavior right, you'll stand before God the Father as loved, accepted, worthy, secure in Christ, because that is the good news. That even if you never get the behavior right, this is about restored relationship, reconciled relationship. And if that's difficult for some of us, we're like the older brother in the story. I think God the Father's response to you is, you can, it's verses in there, you can read it for yourself. Hey, you've always been with me. You've always been with me. You have a share of everything that I've got. But this son of mine was lost and now he's found is dead and now he's alive and we have to celebrate. And when we get that, the church and Christians will not be concerned about guilt by association or reputation or are they condoning their behavior because they celebrate? We don't even know if it's real. No, no, no. They will just have their hearts moved anytime anybody's taken a step toward home. That's what we want for our church. And can I just say this last thing and I'll be done. If you feel like you're the younger brother in the story and you've just run hard and fast, I just want you to hear this for a second because it's so important. God is not angry with you. He's heartbroken. Because sin always has a gotcha. Sin kills stuff. Sin derails what God wants for our life. He's not angry. He's heartbroken. He's compassionate. And this morning, I don't know what it looks like. It might look like I, I, I gotta let go of this. I gotta tell somebody. I gotta get into counseling. But it just starts with this thing. To quote Jesus' words, God, 
I surrender my will, but I'm running back to a father who's gonna receive me, to receive grace, to stop running, to stop hiding. Would you pray with me, Jesus? I pray that you would anchor the truth and the reality of this in this moment, that anybody who runs toward you is gonna be accepted with grace and with compassion. I pray that if any of us finds ourselves as the older brother in the story, and I think a lot of us have been there, that you would just begin to root that out in this moment and you would humble us. You would change our view and perspective of everybody around us. I pray that you would begin to ignite something in our church by your power that we would begin to embody this brand of following Jesus, that we would be these kind of disciples. And we pray this in Jesus' incredible name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.